Today's reading comes from Matthew 5:33 to 37. Again, you have heard it that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You may be seated. And as you're seated, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess, and I confess, uh, that we come this morning with busy, anxious, uh, restless hearts. Minds that have consumed a lot of information, been bombarded with a lot of messages and stories and visions of the good life. And we need your help this morning, Lord, by your Spirit, to hear what you want to speak to us. And so I ask that you would do that. That we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, this better story that you are proclaiming to us this morning. And would we be gracious recipients of that? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the problems with following Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, first off, welcome here. But one of the problems, I'll be honest, with following Jesus is that Jesus, uh, he doesn't allow you to stay the same. He doesn't. He doesn't allow you to stay the same. When I met Jesus uh, late in high school, when I was about 18 years old, uh, he changed all sorts of things in me and through me and that were going on in my life. Changed all, all, all sorts of things. But if I was to pick one thing that Jesus really changed in me and, and, and really forced me to change and, and the Spirit worked in me, was that I was pretty prone up until this point in my life to lying. And I was very, actually very, very good at lying. It's not like a humble brag. Uh, that's just actually mostly embarrassing. I, I was very good at, at lying. I would lie uh, even when I didn't have to lie. So on Sunday mornings, I would go to church with my family, and I would show up at, at church, and I would lie on Sunday mornings about where I was the night before. And, and the, the night before, I would lie about where I was going uh, the, the next morning. And on Monday, I would lie about, about what I had done that weekend, and on Tuesday, and, and on and on. I was really good at lying. And, and maybe you can relate to that this morning. Maybe. You don't know why, but your heart is, is inclined towards... Uh, Obscuring the truth. Getting out of what you've said. See, when I encountered Jesus, everything changed, and that was a problem. Well, it turns out that my proclivity to bend and twist and manipulate the truth uh, wasn't and isn't just a problem I have. Uh, Reading one report this week, looking at youths in America, uh, the, the stats were listed, the following stats were listed, and, and you know what, if you know your own heart, and I know my own heart, they were entirely unsurprising to me. The first stat was this. Uh, nearly two-thirds of American youth uh, lied to a parent, teacher, or someone else in the last three months. Two-thirds. I imagine the other third were lying about it. That they hadn't lied. Uh, 60% had lied to a friend in the past three months. A third of American youths, maybe the teachers in this room can attest to this, a third of the American youths had admitted to cheating on a test in the last three months. 
right? The, the, the glance at your, at your friend next to you. Again, if we've ever walked outside our door before, we, th- these numbers aren't surprising to us. They're not shocking to us. In fact, they're quite casual. But, but maybe we can replace cold, callous stats with real, raw examples. Maybe you're here this morning as an employer. And you have an employee uh, who wasn't honest about their hours and isn't honest about the work that they do. Maybe you're a parent. Maybe you're a parent and, and you're only now seeing the life your child was living. A life that's very different than what they told you. Or maybe you're just a Canadian. Maybe you're a Canadian, and you're angry at the discrepancy between what politicians have promised on both sides of the aisles and what has actually come to pass. Or maybe you are that lying employee, that child, that, that, that politician. In our text this morning, Matthew 5, 33 to 37, Jesus is taking his greater righteousness, this, this better than the scribes and the Pharisees kind of righteousness, and he wants to apply it to the way we speak, to the words we say, to the promises we make one to uh, an, another. And here's how I want to break, through, uh, break down this text this morning. I want to give us three headings, three headings to look at Matthew 5, 33 to 37. The first is this. A call to remember. The second is a condemnation of evil. And the third is a command for simplicity. So a call to remember, a condemnation of evil, and a command for simplicity. First thing is this. Jesus invites us to remember. He calls us to remember who God is. If we were to go in our Bibles to the very beginning to Genesis, we would read from the very beginning that what distinguished uh, the, the, the God of Israel, what separated him from the other pagan gods of the other nations, was that the God of Israel, he spoke. He, he's a speaking God. If you read in the prophets uh, how they condemn the idols of the surrounding nations, you know that one of their favorite phrases is to say that these other idols, the gods that these other nations worship, are, are mute. They don't speak. Fashioned by our hand, they don't speak to us. But Yahweh, the God of Israel, speaks. And better than that, the scriptures tell us, Yahweh speaks truthfully. And that means this. The words of Yahweh not only revealed the way things truly are, how this universe truly exists, but also uh, they were words that could be trusted, built our lives upon. Yahweh does, Israel believes, what he says he will do. And so in the very uh, earliest pages of the Bible, in fact, one of the earliest covenants or oaths we find in the Bible, we see that Yahweh makes a promise to Abraham or a covenant with Abraham. And interestingly enough, he, he makes that oath or that covenant on the basis of who? Of who? Of himself. In Genesis 22, verse 15, we read this. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham uh, a second time from heaven and said, Listen, by myself I have sworn. There there is no other name, no, no greater name, no higher power by which God himself can swear. He himself is the embodiment of truth. He speaks truthfully. And so he swears to Abraham all these blessings and promises on the basis of his name, on the basis of who he is. Yahweh, it's revealed from the very beginning, 
is a God who makes covenants and vows and oaths with his people on the basis of his name. And so what you find then, as you keep on reading your Bible, is that in matters of great seriousness, notice this, in matters of of, of very serious things, Yahweh himself is the standard by which his people are to make vows one to another. This is how God's people are to make promises to one another. In Genesis 21, right before Genesis 22, obviously, we find Abraham making an oath with with a neighboring people. And it's like this peace treaty, and he invokes God's name. In Genesis 24, we have this, could be strange to us scene, uh, where Abraham's servant grabs him like by the thigh, like that. I don't know why I had to demonstrate that for you. That's the thigh, in case you're wondering. But he grabs him by the thigh, and in this, this intimate act, Abraham makes his servant swear to him, that, that he will not marry off his son to a Canaanite woman. Because, of course, the Canaanite woman would lead his son astray to worship other gods. In uh, Genesis, uh, later on in Genesis, right before Jacob, who would be called Israel, dies. Jacob makes his, his, his descendants, his son, swear on Yahweh's name that they will not bury him in Egypt. In matters of great seriousness, the name of Yahweh, of God, is in, invoked. And so oaths by themselves are not to be despised, not to be rejected. When fulfilled, here's the point, when, when fulfilled, it was this beautiful picture of people acting faithfully as God himself is faithful. Of people acting truthfully as God himself is truthful. This is a beautiful picture. But because that connection between oaths and the character of God was so close, you could see why not keeping your oath or or swearing falsely uh, was such a problem. So throughout the Old Testament, we we find these prohibitions against swearing falsely or invoking the name of the Lord falsely. The fourth commandment, it says this, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. In Leviticus 19, verse 12, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I, I am the Lord. In Deuteronomy, again, we see a warning. You shall be careful, be careful to do what is past your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your, your mouth. And so Jesus says in our text this morning, do you remember? Again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now Jesus is not quoting a specific passage in the Old Testament. Rather, Jesus is quoting a law that the scribes and the Pharisees had created in their day that basically acts as this summarizing law. Summarizing the teachings of the Old Testament. Jesus quotes this law. And before we go any further, let's push pause for a second and and acknowledge something that's very real for us. Uh, Everyone sitting on the mountainside in Jesus' day uh, was living in a world where words meant something. Where words carried weight and meaning. And you couldn't just say, like, just kidding after you said something stupid and just make it go away like we can now. These people lived in a world where words meant something. And that's not our world. We we live in a place in time where where lying 
or as we call it, speaking half-truths, is widely accepted. And the church uh, is just the same. Jesus is calling us, he's calling them, he's calling us to remember the significance of the words we speak. Because let's be very honest. This is our fourth antithesis. And so far we've looked at, what have we looked at so far? Anger, divorce and adultery, lust, right? And it's easy to come to our text this morning and be like, okay, week off, right? Just oath, just speaking. Like, finally a reprieve from sort of the Debbie Downerness that's been going on so far. But I think what that reveals is our own cultural uh, waters that, that we actually don't care what we say anymore. What we'll find is that false oaths, they reveal something desperately wrong and, and, and twisted about our hearts. In fact, let's consider our second point, a condemnation of evil. We find that the evil heart that was underneath all that was going on in Jesus' day, and we'll see what that was, still persists today. Look back at verses 33 to 37 with me. Let's read this. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no, anything more than this comes from evil. Again, same formula, right? You, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and Jesus gives us, again, the command. Do not take an oath at all. Let what you say be simply yes or, or, or no. So to get at the evil that Jesus is condemning here, we have to understand this first century context. There's a bit of work for us to do. See, as we've seen, the command to not swear falsely was very much alive and well in Jesus' day. It was there. People observed it. They're like, yeah, this is a real thing, right? Our words matter. It, it matters what we say. But because people back then are like people now, uh, they had devised a system of, of creating and taking oaths whereby they could skirt their responsibilities. So it worked like this. Rather than swearing by God's name, well, they could swear by heaven. And they could avoid, you know, God altogether and just swear by earth. Or if they were swearing to like a, a religious person, uh, they could swear by Jerusalem. They could make an oath by Jerusalem. So the religious leaders in Jesus' day had devised this sort of scaled system of vows by which they could indicate whether or not what they're saying was really important. And so they wouldn't swear by God's name because that's bad, right? But what they could do is swear by, by earth or, or, or by Jerusalem or, or by heaven because that's not quite as important as Yahweh. That's not quite as holy as his name. This whole system, it comes to head uh, very clearly later in Matthew. In Matthew 23, when Jesus is pronouncing uh, woes on the scribes and the Pharisees, he attacks the system head on. In Matthew 23, he says this, Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, well, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, 
the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Verse 21, and whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So imagine with me this first century conversation. Imagine with me. Jim, someone says, because that's a good Jewish first century name. Jim, did, did Saul ever do that work for you that he promised? Did he ever do that work for you that, that he promised to do? To which Jim uh, responds, No, but you know what? He only swore by the temple. He didn't swear by the gold in the temple. And so I really don't have much hope of him actually fulfilling his vow. Of him actually fulfilling his oath. Philo, he's a Jewish philosopher who lived around the time of Jesus. He describes sort of what was happening at the time like this. There are some who have an evil habit of swearing incessantly and thoughtlessly about ordinary matters. Basically, people are skirting the truth by making O's using different sort of technical requirements. Now, I would say, I would say, imagine what kind of world this creates, but when people can't be trusted uh, to do what they say they will do. But I don't have to say imagine, do I? I don't have to, you know, have us work to think of that world, to, to think of a time like that. This is the world that we live in. It's our world that we live in. Uh, Yuval Harari, one of our modern-day philosophers, he wrote this. As a species, humans prefer power to truth. We spend far more time and effort on trying to control the world than on trying to understand it. And even when we try to understand it, we usually do so in the hope that understanding the world will make it easier to control it. If you dream of of a society in which truth reigns supreme and myths are ignored, you have little to expect from homo sapiens. Better to try your luck with chimps. Now Harari, to be clear, is condemning the, the whole religious movement. He's saying religion is this, this, this power move trying to conceal the truth. But what I think he's getting at, in a roundabout way, in a way he probably doesn't intend, is something that is actually deeply true. That driven by deeper desires for, for power and money and sex, and usually in that order or some order therein, we conceal the truth. You know, as I was walking this morning, I was thinking about two examples. The first example was this. I recently watched this documentary where they looked at the opioid uh, crisis. They looked at uh, Purdue Pharmaceutical. Purdue Pharmaceutical uh, created uh, what we would call uh, like the, the modern opioid uh, crisis. Uh, the producers of Oxycontin. Terrible drug has wreaked havoc across, across the globe, really. And, and the Purdue reps, they would go to these doctors and say, listen, the chance of this drug, this painkiller, leading to addiction is actually quite, quite, quite low. And all their advertising would say, it's actually quite low. It's actually not that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. This drug is safe. 
Now, of course, what are they saying that on the basis of? Some sort of technicality. What's safer than what? I don't know, cocaine? Like, then what? Skirting the truth on big, systemic, like, evil levels. But, but skirting the truth isn't always that nefarious, is it? I find when I skirt the truth, when I tell what I call a half-truth, it is often because I want people to think something of me. Just like me. Accept me. Hear my cool story. That might be embellished a little bit. We have to hold both of these examples in tension here this morning. It is in the big evil things of this world. But it's also in our hearts. In small little ways. We live in a fractured world where the words that proceed from our lips intentionally and and maybe not even intentionally, they misrepresent our hearts. And, And the big truth in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 23 that Jesus brings to bear on us and Purdue Pharmaceutical, the big truth that he brings to bear on everyone this morning is simply this. Ready? God is everywhere. He's everywhere. In theology, we call this his omnipresence. His omnipresent lordship or or kingship. Everything belongs to him. And so listen, there is no way of getting around the fact that any falsehood, any lie, any quote-unquote half-truth is directly or indirectly an affront to God. One commentator, he summarizes what Jesus is saying like this. God is king over all. Over all. Any oath that touches anything under God makes a person accountable for the words used. I want to be very clear. We could paraphrase Jesus as saying something like this. Just because you appeal to some lesser thing, that lesser thing, even just a silly old altar or or even just your head, that lesser thing is under God's rule. It's under God's reign. You can't make your hair white or black, but guess what? He can. He can. So as it currently stands, you're intentionally deceiving one another through oaths. And in some way, all of this leads back to the great king. I think what Jesus is getting at is like, listen, we think about our lives only existing on this horizontal level. Only creating chaos amongst us, amongst other people. But Jesus is saying, eventually those lies curve upwards. That there's a vertical dimension when we lie and withhold the truth from one another people. That ultimately, our lying, our, our refusal to, to uphold our promises is an affront, is a stench to our Father. And so Jesus concludes, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. We're going to look at that first half of that verse at the end, but I want to look at the second half right now. Did did you hear that? Anything more than this comes from evil. The root of all lying, of half-truths, so-called harmless deception, is, is ultimately evil itself. Again, put ourselves in the shoes of those first century listeners sitting on that mountainside. I, I have to think that some of them if not all of them, but some of them would have thought back to to the very first lie ever told. They would have envisioned the serpent slithering beside Eve and and whispering four words into her ear. 
did God really say? Did God really say? Did he really say? When Jesus is talking to a group of Jews in John's gospel, Jewish people eager to make sure that Jesus knows that that they are true children of Abraham, true children of God. Listen to what Jesus says. He says to him, and can you imagine? This is Jesus, meek and mild. But he says this. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Think about the contrast being painted here. If Yahweh is true and holy and does whatever he says he will do, over here the contrast is that of the devil and he is the father of lies. Inherent in their character, in their nature, are these two things. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. When we lie, when we don't say we, when, when we don't do what we say we will do, when our word cannot be trusted, when it's been emptied of any reassuring power, we align our character with the very character of the devil. For followers of Jesus, when we fail to be people of our word, to use language from Paul, we are putting back on a nature which we have taken off in order to put on Christ. In Colossians 3.9, Paul says this, Do not lie to one another. Do not lie to one another. He's speaking to a church. Church, do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. For all of us, if you're a follower of Jesus or not this morning, maybe you're struggling right now to understand how Jesus' condemnation of a first-century oath-skirting system actually applies to you today in 2020 in Vancouver. Uh, But maybe we can think of it this way. As many people and news outlets have noted, uh, we are becoming a generation of flakes. A generation of flakes. Uh, L Magazine, not a uh, periodical I typically read, but L Magazine nothing wrong with Elle Magazine, has called it uh, the golden age of bailing. We live in the golden age of bailing. Ghosting. Now, I got married before a dating app, so I had to read about this. Uh, But ghosting is this act of just disappearing from people's lives, typically those you've met via a dating app. Uh, This is now a frequently used term, to ghost someone. Think about this. As a culture, we have created a cute little phrase to describe people who who thoughtlessly and and callously disappear on other people, oftentimes after having slept with them. That's just ghosting. The latest numbers on workplace distraction suggest that it is normal, like average— for 40%, 40% of an employee's workday to be spent doing something other than what they promised to do for their employer. 40%. You don't have to believe in the devil to agree with me that the emotional, relational, societal, economic wake of destruction that is left behind when we conceal the truth is massive, is huge. It's huge. 
And so where do we go from here? I had a professor who said uh, this, uh, Jesus doesn't end with condemnation, always with invitation. And so what is Jesus inviting us into this morning? What is the good news for us? I want to suggest this. Jesus is inviting us into nothing less than a whole person disciple who speaks and promotes and loves what is true. Let me say that again. Jesus is inviting us to be a whole person disciple who speaks and promotes and loves what is true. And this is seen in our third point, a command for simplicity. A command for simplicity. Look back at the text with me, verses 34 and 37. Do not take an oath at all, Jesus says. In verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, before we look at what Jesus is saying, I want to be clear what Jesus is is not saying in our text this morning. Uh, There are some in the history of the church who, uh, with a genuine desire to love and be obedient to Jesus, have heard Jesus say, uh, do not take an oath at all, and said, easy. I won't take an oath at all. Jesus says it. I won't do it. Uh, Where I grew up in southern Ontario, about two hours east of where I grew up, there was this Amish community. Now, if you don't know who the Amish are, you can watch, you know, TLC and their shows about them, about them, you know, leaving their communities. They don't watch television. Uh, they do the horse and buggy thing. Um, they, they sell their furniture at craft fairs. Uh, their jams are usually delicious, right? The Amish people have, have largely removed themselves from society. And in part, in part, not entirely, but in part, because of verses just like this. See, if you believe Jesus says don't take any oaths at all, it all of a sudden makes marriage vows and signing a mortgage uh, and, and military service and swearing before a judge, like really difficult, doesn't it? And you almost have to do what the Amish did. You have to pull back and create a non-oath-laden society in order for you to exist and live and have your, your, your being. But as we've seen, Beginning from the Old Testament and into the New Testament, actually, uh, oaths themselves, on their own, by themselves, are are not the problem. Uh, Paul, in his letters, all the time, will swear oaths. He'll swear oaths. In Acts 18, we find Paul taking what's called a Nazarite vow. We see this continued practice of of oath-taking. Like with all of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is aiming for the heart this morning. Complex first century oath systems are symptomatic of deceitful and wicked hearts, of lying hearts. In the same way, a few weeks ago, he used poetic and hyperbolic language when he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and and throw it away. He's saying to his ancient listeners, listen, friends, people on this mountainside, You need to be people of simplicity with your words. And that might mean, for many of you, dropping this oath system altogether. Just getting rid of it altogether. In the same way, Jesus was giving us radical, practical steps to get at our lusting hearts. He is giving us radical, practical steps to get at our lying hearts. Our deceitful hearts. And if you don't think simply letting your yes be yes and your no be no is radical, 
then I, I would suggest you've never seen this command for simplicity in speech and action. Because it is radical when demonstrated in our day and age. We live, don't we, in a fine print world. We live in a fine print world. We don't have people swearing by heaven, earth, or Jerusalem. At least, I don't know anybody who does that. Maybe you do. We, we live in a fine print world. We do have companies telling us that our insurance uh, doesn't cover our losses because of these three or four points on page 46 uh, in the size 8 font in the bottom left-hand corner. Didn't you read it? We don't have people, again, turning by heaven or earth or by Jerusalem. But don't we make our promises with fine print that reads, unless something better comes up? Don't we? Or if I'm not too tired? Or if I'm still interested when the time comes? We live in a fine print world and we've made peace with this. Just how we do things. It's no different in the church. In this way, the church has completely adopted its surrounding cultural waters. How radical, how strange, how radical, how strange would a people who spoke with simplicity and clarity look in this fine print world? If we in this corner of Vancouver were people whose yes meant yes and our no meant no, and you could trust us. I I confess I am far from being a person of simplicity in speech that Jesus wants me to be. I love, I love my fine print world. My my fine print world gets me out of anything I want. I'm really, really good at this. I'm an expert at telling you why my yes is no longer yes. And my no no longer means no. Just this week, I was presented with an opportunity to speak clearly to someone about the lordship of Jesus, what he has to say about how we live our lives. And, and, and I stumbled. And, and I muddied the truth. Here's the good news that I need this morning. Maybe you need this too. Our hope for being a whole person disciple of Jesus does not rest on our promise doesn't rest on our willpower. It doesn't hinge on our commitment. It doesn't hinge on our faithfulness. It doesn't hinge on the power of our word. Our hope this morning, our joy, our good news, the good news of this place this morning is that the Father has said yes once and for all to us when he put us in Jesus. When he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and rise from the grave on our behalf. As the Spirit says elsewhere about Jesus, listen, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. He has spoken a resounding yes over us. All of the things God has vowed to His people, oathed to His people, since the day the serpent whispered those four words to Eve, All those things he has promised to do have come true and will come true in Jesus. Our our hope for transformation in our anger, in our lust, uh, in our broken relationships, is that God has promised, that God has covenanted himself to us. All that is left for us to do this morning is to believe. 
is to believe, is to trust. It, it was a problem when I first met Jesus. It was annoying. I, I, I was reading someone this a few weeks ago who said, uh, like, temptation doesn't really exist until you meet Jesus uh, because now you have something to resist, right? It was a problem when I first met, met, met Jesus. And my life of deception was no longer an option. But it was also a relief. It was also a relief. And not just in the cathartic sense that I could share these things with my parents and with other people, and now like, oh, that's a relief to get that off my shoulders. It was more than that. I could now build my life on the truth. On the truth. Jesus does not just expose the lies in our life. He's not just content with exposing us, with laying us bare with leaving us in the corner in our sin just to remain there because he's punitive and and, and mean and, and wagging his finger at us. No, Jesus does not leave us in our sin. Rather, he offers himself as the one true person upon which we can build our life. The truth. The truth. So children of the Father, follower of Jesus this morning, hear me. Clothe yourself with Christ once again. Continue to put on the new self that is Christ himself being formed in you day by day by day over time. It's a process. To every person here today, follower of Jesus or not, come and meet Jesus who has said yes to you and is not taking it back. He is not wavering. He will not ghost or or flake on you. He is faithful. As we read, Even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Would you stand with me as we respond? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.